0: welcome to another episode of comedy wham presents with me your host valerie and sometime co-host miss purrington ComedyWham.com is your place to go for features about all austin comedy you can keep up with us on twitter and instagram at comedy wham or on our comedy wham facebook page in addition to podcasts comedy wham brings you articles album reviews live shows and an events page for live shows in austin and houston If you're a comic in those cities and want your show listed on the calendar, go to the events page and click Submit a Show to complete the short survey. Now let's get back to our podcast. Launched in 2016, the podcast project brings you funny people and their stories. As a fan, I like to delve into a comic's background and motivations, and we usually take a detour along the way. Consider the interview a way for you to get to know the folks that make the Austin comedy scene one of the best in the country. And if you like this podcast, please rate and review us. Today, after COVID last year, in the summer of 2020, he launched a network of online comedy shows, including In the Meme Time, me, bah, that was tough to say, In the Meme Time, I'm sure I wasn't the only one struggling with that show name, <laughs> <laughs> Triple Threat and Geeked Out. In the fall of 2020, he made a big pivot to running in-person shows at the Vulcan Gas Company and started bringing in bigger and bigger names, including Fahim Anwar, Josh Wolf, Steve Byrne, Ali Mikofsky, and more. But big names have been dropping in, names like Joe Rogan and Ron White. He was recently featured on the AV Club interview, and he's not a comic, but he is a big player in the Austin comedy scene as the CEO of Big Laugh Comedy. And now, Comedy Wham presents our guest, Brandon Lewin.
1: Hi, Hi. thank you so much for having me.
0: Absolutely, this has been an interview a long time coming.
1: Yes. I like how you said in the intro, funny people. I'm like, I am not funny at all. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I have my moments, Yeah, but I usually have people write my lines for me if I want to be funny. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, but I'm honored to be here. So thank you so yeah. much for having me.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely, Brandon. Uh, let's let's get my icebreaker question out of the way, and then we'll we'll dig okay. into to y- your story. Uh, my icebreaker is one word to describe your past.
1: Oh, uh, one word. Hmm. Uh, I say persistence. Like, I am persistent as hell. Like, I talked to somebody last night and uh, he's, I was like, he was like, man, he's, we were just talking. It was a friend's birthday party. And I said, I'm very persistent. He's like, that is an understatement, Brandon. He's like, if I had to close a deal, he's like, <laughs> I would hire you, give me $10,000 in cash to go close the deal. He's like, that's how persistent you are. I was like, yeah so <laughs> yeah but I can, I can yeah it that. works in my favor for most of the time <laughs> sometimes it doesn't but nine out of ten times it does so it that's how I would call my past is you know I've had a lot of ups and downs but I've always been uh, persistent in my path and what I wanted to do so I think that's the the word I would I would stick with that right now, right now yeah. at least
0: no that's one of my favorite words I'd like to think that uh, I share that in common with you uh, as well I'm bullheaded like <laughs> like
1: <helping> it out. <laughs> hey it, it's a good trait to have if you've it got is. a goal or you're focused on something and you want to do it like you have to be persistent if you want to get to it so yeah
0: now even though you're you're not a comic per se mm-hmm. uh i do want to ask the, a, a similar question that i would ask um any of my comic guests is what role did comedy have in your life growing up
1: mm. it was a huge role in my life um My dad, my my dad's side of the family was always actually both sides of my family. Like I had my uncle on my mom's side of the family that was, he was like the fun go, uh, like fun party guy. Always had the jokes. It was always dirty jokes too. And even when I was like seven or eight years old, he would tell me these jokes, and I had no idea what he was talking about, but I would laugh. And you know, my other uncle, who's my dad's oldest brother. We had this whole thing that it went back when I was like four or five that he would put me on his lap and pretend I was, you know a puppet, and he would move his hand behind my head and I would open my mouth and he would talk and, and we'd do it in front of our uh, like the crowd, our family at, at like a party or whatever gathering. And um, just stuff like that, and it was always a part of my dad. Uh, would drive me to school when I was in like sixth or seventh grade, and we would listen to Bobby Slayton um on on a cd or tape i forgot what it was back then but one of those uh non-existent uh materials that we don't use anymore um and then also uh andrew dice clay was a big one um the, uh, eddie murphy was by far my favorite growing up um someone i just looked up to watched all his movies I watched his stand-up specials that I probably shouldn't have watched at the time, but it was a huge part of it in my my whole life. So I grew up with four siblings, and I had three brothers and a sister, and I am the second to the youngest out of all of them. And so um, I got to see, and they were always jokesters. Actually, they were more like ballbusters. I don't know if they were my, am I allowed to swear on this. Yes, absolutely. Um, okay, great. So they were they were like. They were roasters, right? Like, I guess you call them now roasters. Back then it was, you know, just like ball busting. But yeah. that's, like, I have very thick skin from that stuff. And so I might, even my dad was like that too. And then we, I remember one of the things in, in the car rides, sometimes with my dad, he would say, uh I, I'd make a joke and it would be funny. He's like, here's a quarter, take the bus home. If you tell a bad joke, you gotta, you gotta oh you know, find wife. a different way home. <laughs> So we learned very quickly that either you were funny or you you passed on it, um, or you tried harder. And sometimes I had to take the bus home, but it was okay. It was a learning experience, you know, as a as a ten year old riding the bus by myself. No, I'm just joking. I didn't do that. Wow. But, um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I I mean, all right. So my dad put me through a lot of stuff, not like bad things, but a lot of like learning experiences, probably like now people would look back on it and be like, "Ah, that's not really that good, but it it molded me and and gave me a lot of character. I mean, when I was 13, he made me work for an entire summer because I wasn't doing anything during that summertime. So I would truck back and forth from a suburb to the suburbs of Chicago to the city took about 45 minutes. I would take a train bus. I would walk a couple miles and I would do this for the entire summer at thirteen, with like no no supervision whatsoever. And I think the only form of communication I had was a pager at the time. So like you know things like that that my dad put me through, but that like molded me to the hardworking ethics that and and hardworking you know um, uh, DNA that I have today. And so it was it was good, but yeah. So comedy was a big part of my life. And I always say now with what we're doing, big laugh comedies that I wish somebody told me when I was younger that I could actually do that as like a profession. Cause I probably would have, like when I was younger, I was, I was, I was into two things. I was, well, three things, but I was into mostly sports and comedy. Um, and then girls obviously fell into that as well eventually, but it was mostly, uh, comedy and, and sports. And it was two things I really enjoyed, but I never, I always wanted to be a basketball player and, um people you know told me oh yeah if you work hard this and that what they didn't tell you is that like you you really have to work really hard when you're only like six feet tall and uh you're not the su- most super athletic person in the world so uh it was someone who would have told me about that the comedy side because maybe i would have went down that path but you know again it's all those things where this molded me into who i am today and i would never change anything that's ever happened and uh it's just now that I look back on it, I'm like, man, this is why I want to do stuff with big about comedy to also include kids. So I could we can, we can bring and show kids. Cause my, my daughter who's 10 years old and even my son who's seven. They want to come see comedy shows, but not a lot of the acts yeah. are very kid friendly. Right. And yeah. so there's certain comedians that we follow together, like preacher Lawson is a great example. Um, he is completely clean and probably the only clean comp. Well, Uh, One of my favorite clean comics, as you say, there's a lot of clean comics out there actually nowadays, but, um, but just people like that. So it's just fun and, and letting kids know. I even, uh, when I first got into comedy, um, doing stuff with big laugh comedy, I went to my kid's school, um, because they go to a STEM school. So it's, it's, you know, it's a different curriculum and they really, preach creativity and problem solving and engineering and mathematics that's kind of what the stem stands for but they um they ask for uh, parents who have a creative business to come there and talk to them and so they can see those kind of uh, professions that they could grow into if they want to and um I told them that I was doing stand-up because this is when I actually first started doing stand-up about five years ago and they're like, oh, that'd be great. Come back, come to the school. So I brought my mic and my stand. And I I didn't use my own material because it was very raunchy, but I used <laughs> like I found kids' jokes. I stole kids' jokes off the internet. And I did a couple and then all the kids, I remember it was um, it was my son's kindergarten class. And so of course it's like a bunch of five year olds. It was probably the hardest. Um it was my yeah, it was my son's. It was by far the hardest uh, crowd I've ever had to deal yeah. with. And but they were great. And then they started telling jokes and, and that kind of stuff is what I like what I love about all this because you can you can really do whatever you want, but you can spread that message that people understand that one, it's great to make people laugh. I tell my kids every morning I'm like, listen, make someone laugh because if you smile, you a smile and a laugh can change a person's day and life and world for the rest. You just don't know how much that can impact them and it does a lot. So so anyway, go back to your original question. Um, Yeah, I was hugely impacted by comedy growing up.
0: Yeah. Well, you have given me so many little nuggets of information about you, and I'm going to try to drill down into a few of those uh, in the conversation. One is, uh, I think maybe a year and a half or two years ago, you and I spent some time getting to know one another. We just um, you were uh, starting to dip your toes into less so the the stand-up world but more of the the comedy production world and you wanted to know mm-hmm. what what Comedy Wham did and maybe it came up at the time but I was in doing my research for today's talk uh, I forgot that you were from Chicago and yeah. um, I spent 10 years there my son was born there so I you know oh, I nice. know what that environment is like. And I, I, you know, for, for people that were uh, raised in Texas or any, you know, rural esque uh, part of the country, seeing kids riding the L or the, the, the buses is not an unusual sight. And it, yeah, I totally um, gives you a, a tough skin to, you know, be able to know navigation, self pres- pre- uh, self-preservation self and protection and just, yeah, I, I just, you, I wouldn't put my kid through it, <laughs> which is why I moved us away. But no, I, I totally see um, uh, the, not I'm, I'm not gonna say the benefit cause I think that just petrified me, the thought that I could, I would send my kid on the L at some point. And, <laughs> His, his childhood but I, I saw people doing it. Um, so yeah you definitely built the tough skin from that and from being raised with multiple siblings like that because I uh, my my dad came from a, a large family and that's exactly what I saw at family gatherings is all of the siblings busting each other's balls and it was hilarious. It was it absolutely is. hilarious to watch um you decided uh to pursue a career in um marketing
2: mm-hmm.
0: when you finished uh school what was your uh what was your decision making process to to pursue that as a as a career what interested you about that
1: mm-hmm. so it's funny, when I go back then, um, I actually never finished school. I went to college for a couple of years. And then I just, I, school was just never my thing. Like, I love, I love learning. Like, I love, love learning. But I, yeah. what I don't like is people tell me what to do. Ah. And so um having to be told what I need to learn or when I need to do stuff is just not in my DNA. So I kind of, I realized that in college. I also spent a lot of time having a good time in college, too. Ah. So there was that as well. Um, but through that experience, um, what I realized is what I was good at was with people. I was good with people. Um, I was good. I was very, so It kind of goes back when I was 11 years old, my parents got divorced and I was 11 years old. And to me, it was like, my world just crumbled and I took it really hard. And then it was also a very nasty divorce. It happened. Mm-hmm. It lasted about eight years. Um, and my parents, my parents put me in the middle of it a lot of times stuff that like you just never want children to go through. And it was tough, right? Like it, it it wasn't necessarily like something they intended it to do and it wasn't intentional, but it's, I can't imagine from a parent's perspective how that can when you're going through something that rough and unfortunately sometimes you just take that stuff out on people that are close to you and having two kids in the house. I'm like, that's kind of what happened. So, um, But through that experience, I was put into, because I handled it so horribly, (laughs) um, they put me through therapy. And through therapy, I actually, I've been going to therapy from like age 11 to like third, age 30. I mean, I haven't been to it in a while, but through that experience, I learned my emotions. I learned how to Mm. realize and understand my emotions. I also learned how to kind of really understand other people's emotions and so what people really and this is funny my brother who's uh he's a secret service agent and he's uh he's very in tune to investigations right like that's what they do they investigate the part you know law enforcement and he always told me he's like brandon you're you have a very high emotional intelligence eq and he's like you very you have very high it's very high and i was like I mean, that makes total sense. Like at the time when he told me this years ago, I was like, I don't. It was like a new word. The EQ was like a new word. Now it's like very common. But emotional intelligence, and I, I was like, man. And that is what I believe kind of led me into the career that I, I am. I was also a very social person. I love going to parties. Love hanging out with people. I love throwing parties. I did a lot of that in college. And so through all that, it was like, man, what can I do? And one of my, I remember uh, this is kind of how it started was that my best friend from high school, his older brother was about five years older than us. He um, was doing really well with an internet business that he was running back in like 2000, I think it was 2004 or five. And um, it was the non-sexy stuff, it's selling traffic, right? Like this is how Google essentially makes their money and made their money was selling traffic. And so he did it just, on a lower scale, but still was very lucrative. And he would had this idea of starting another business. And at the time he wanted to start a tick online ticket brokerage. There wasn't very many StubHub was like, I think just coming up. Um, he had all the means, the, the tools, the knowledge and the money. And he's like, Brandon, I just need someone to do it. He's like, will you help me out? And we could partner up. I was like, fantastic. So we started doing it and created, I, I learned how to create a website back then. Hmm. Um, I learned how to find the tickets and talk to people and get those deals. And then I found how to market to, to people and friends. And, um, so I started using my connections and working that and I really fell in love with it. Like the, the, I remember the, one of the biggest moments is that friend of mine, ironic. It's funny. She bought tickets to an R Kelly concert. All right. Back then we didn't know, I mean, we probably did see the writing on the wall, but no one was like, you know, but she bought the tickets and I I went to, I got them for her. She was very happy about it because they were sold out and I brought it to her and she just had this big smile on her face. She gave me a big old hug. She's like, Brandon, thank you so much. I was really looking forward to going to this concert. I was afraid I wasn't going to be able to make it. And I was like, you're very welcome. And that feeling of helping someone else out to get to a point of being, you know, happy and joyful, that brought me happiness you know yeah. I'm like kind of like a it was like a people-pleasing situation and so um I I got that kind of high and I I just ran with it and and um I even I mean sh- shoot I tell the story all the time but even going back when I was 10 years old my dad first taught me how to sell and I remember that was that was really truly the first time I was like man this is something I could do huh. but at 10 years old you're like you're not you know sitting and thinking about that all the time but right. he made he, he taught me how to make money by shoveling snow on people's driveways in in Chicago in the winter. And I made like a couple hundred bucks with a friend of mine and I bought, I had made enough money to like buy a pair of Jordans is really what my motivation was behind that. But that too was that the experience I had was the first time I remember I looked at my friend and we were going to go knock on the first person's door and he was petrified, I was petrified, but somebody had to do it, like right? And and so I basically was just like, I'm going to do it. I go up to the door. i knock. on it was an older woman and she was like very nice. And we knew her cause she was a neighbor in the neighborhood. And she was like, of course, you know, here, here's $5 to the driveway. We did it. She was very thankful. We also helped a woman who normally wouldn't have helped to do this, to do it for her. So she could get to, from her house into her car, go wherever she needs to go and come back and not have to worry about, you know, slipping on the ice or walking through yeah. snow or shoveling all that stuff. So again, that that feeling. So that's where I, I really learned that sales and marketing was my thing. Like I, I sales was originally my my passion, and that's kind of what I got into it was just selling and helping people make decisions and find products and services that they liked. But uh, it it quickly morphed into marketing because marketing's you know really how do you draw people in, and that part of it um, I really started to I learned I taught myself uh, essentially how to do marketing. And in the years of like between 2006 and 2008, I spent a lot of time, and I I still did after that too. But spent a lot of time just learning the the tricks of the trade, psychology, like all that stuff. And even back then, they were always talking about how video was going to be a big part of marketing, and I was always a big component of doing that. When I first started my um, when I started my first marketing agency, it was a social media marketing agency actually back in 2008, and we helped small businesses. And one of the big pieces that I used is I created videos and I put them on our website to help people to to talk to them and let them kind of know who who I was and who we were and what we stood for, and and just explain things and that helped a, a ton. I remember a lot of times when we had clients before we even got a chance to to meet in person, like Brandon. I always I feel like I already know oh. you because I-, I would watch these videos and I was like a little bit of ahead of the time. It was great. I mean, I, I loved it. So marketing was something that I fell in love with. And um, I was never like a superstar in marketing. I never made like a shit ton of money or had a super successful business. But it, it, again, like life is funny because it leads you down different paths and you're supposed to, I always believe like, you know, things happen for a reason. And yeah. I believe that kind of led me into where we are today because without that, um, I wouldn't be in the position I am now to uh, be running big laugh comedy, and right. helping people laugh and bring some joy to their lives. You know,
0: right, right. When and what brought you to to Austin? Because at this point, mm-hmm. I'm assuming all of this is happening in the the in Chicagoland Chicago. area area. So, yeah. what brought you and when did that happen? I lived
1: my life. I lived 32 years in Chicago, and. Oof. Born and raised, loved that place, went to college there, met my wife there, had my first two kids there.
2: Yeah.
1: Um and I I I it's it means so much to me being from Chicago, but at the same time, I throughout my life I've always tried to kind of get away from the city. Yeah. There was a time where when when uh we were uh, when Bush declared war and we were going uh, in Afghanistan and everything was going there, I was actually trying to get into the the military. I was trying to get into the Marines, but I was actually on uh, probation. And oh. so I, I, as a youngster, I got into some trouble and I couldn't, the court wouldn't allow me to do it. Or I, I might've just not tried hard enough because I'm sure they probably would have really let me if they wanted to, but I just didn't try hard enough. I remember I tried to. I asked the judge one time and they just wouldn't let me do it. So, um, but I, I was trying to do that. And then, um, also, uh, and that's a whole nother story. I, know I, brought him, like, <laughs> I said probation. And then I just left yeah. and I like, ran like, okay. a different direction and there's going to be, I could just think of everyone's going through their head, like, Oh, what did this guy do? Oh my God. Um, it was stupid stuff, stupid kid stuff, you know, when I was younger. And, uh, so, and that's a whole nother conversation, but, um, They, so uh, I, I tried doing that. Uh, I also had my sister, my sister lived in Boston for like 15 years and I used to go out there and visit her. I also had a girlfriend in high school slash college that I, uh, that she went to school out in Massachusetts. And so I would always visit Boston quite often and I loved the city I always wanted to move there. I thought it'd be great. I tried to do that, but it just never worked out. So fast forward, I, I met my wife, we were, we had, um, my daughter and my son, my son, I think, um, was like a year, or year and a half. And we were, we took, we used to take family, um, summer trips down or, or winter trips down to Rotan, Honduras, because we have family friends that, um, run a real estate company down there and they have houses for rent. And we usually would go down there and stay, you know, uh, pretty inexpensively. So my mother-in-law, would bring us down there and we would hang out. And, uh, I I was at that time I had got fired from my last job. I was, I worked, um, I worked for myself for a a number of years. And then I, I decided when I met my wife that I was going to kind of pull back and not work as much. And I would work for agencies. And so I sold my part of my company to this agency and worked for them for a little bit. Then I started jumping around because I realized like I was a horrible employee. Um, once you work for yourself, it's really hard to work for someone else. Yeah, uh, and so that's kind of what I was trying to do. And I just bounced around from different places. And so, um, when I, uh, my last agency that I worked at, I got fired and I was, and I was halfway out the door anyways, I was already bringing on clients and doing stuff kind of on the side. And I, um, and so I was like five months into working for myself, and I was doing pretty well. I had like clients all over the country. We were down in Honduras. I was using at the time they had dial up internet. I was using that to um, hold calls and do work for clients down there. And uh, it, it worked out well, but that it, something clicked. I remember we were about to come back to Chicago. And it was like January, the beginning of January, and there was a snowstorm, a blizzard just hit. And my my daughter was like four, three or four at the time, and four, and she looked at T, she's like, I don't want to go back to the snow, I want to wear sandals all the time. Aww. And it just clicked in my head that like, man, if we wanted to, we really could move anywhere because my job doesn't rely on me just being in Chicago. I can, I, wor- I work with clients all across the United States. So I was like, we can go anywhere. Yeah. So I posed that to my, so I I brought that stuff to my attention to my wife and I, I started having a conversation with her and and Jasmine's been, I mean, talk about blessings guys. She has been the most supportive person in my entire life. Like no matter what, she is always behind me 110% and she will do whatever she needs to do to make sure that, uh, what we're doing is, is the right thing. And so she, um, she, she said, she, her eyes sparked up. She's like, Oh my, because she's originally from Miami. So she lived nine oh. winters in Chicago. And she was she was pretty much done with that. She was <laughs> ready to get out of there. And so when I posed that, she was like, Yes. And then we started looking in different places. We lived in Florida. She's like, she's from Florida, but she's like, I'll never move back to Florida. So she's like, that's mm. no. Um, then we looked at California and LA. And um, as much as I love that place, it was just the cost of living was too high. And uh, we both had friends that lived here in Austin. My best friend from high school, who actually his brother who put me, who helped me start as an entrepreneur, he was living here. And so I had visited him a few times and this was, you know, eight, eight years ago. He, he had come down here quite a bit because of South by Southwest, he was in the music industry. Um, so he knew this place really well and he moved down here and he was here for like four or five years. And I used to come and visit him and I fell in love with it. Like the food, the atmosphere, the growth, yeah. it, it was, uh, it was a great place to, to raise family. Um, and so, uh, I, 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 proposed that to my wife and she was like, you know, she was pregnant at the time too. Like all of this, we decided to move when we had two young kids, we were pregnant. She was pregnant with our third, um, oh all of our support system was 90% oh. of our support system was in Chicago. And we're like, hey, let's move away from all of that and go to a place that we only know two people at. Yeah. And really, the the my my thing. So I I brought this up to my wife, and the reason I decided I wanted to move was actually because from a business and an entrepreneur perspective, and just personal growth, like the best way. And I've always heard this from people: is the best way to to grow is put yourself, take yourself out of your comfort zone. And I was like, what better way to take yourself out of the comfort zone? Than to move to a new city that you barely know anybody, you have a new child on the way and you have no support system down there. I'm like, talk about uh, really being able to grow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, and that's what I did. It was, re- that was my goal for all this. For my wife, it was to provide her a place where there was warmth, great cost of living, um, a, good, a good school system for our children to grow up and, and learn from. And so um, she fell in love, it, in love with the, the area because of that. I was just here more so to, to grow. And then and, and that's what happened. I mean, eventually it was a very, I mean, we've been here almost six years. It's been an up and down roller coaster up until like this point, uh, both from like an emotional and financial standpoint. And it's just—it was a. There was a lot of struggle, you know. Like when you, like seriously, people don't understand this. When you truly (laughs) take yourself out of the comfort zone, and you get uncomfortable, it is fucking hard, and it can be very, very hard. And it only takes the like strong-willed, hard-headed people like you and (laughs) myself um, that can like push through and and really come out on the other side and. I had, I had faith in myself, although sometimes I didn't, but most, most times I did. And it it led to this and, you know, now we're doing something uh, pretty important and I think we're doing something really good. So, um, and we're, you know, the business is successful right now. So I'm, I'm happy. Um, It's fun. It's tiring, but it's fun. (laughs) Um, And that was, that was our story though. Like getting out of there, coming here, it was just, you know, it was a bit of a transition, but we, everything happens for a reason, right? Like I believe wholeheartedly, like I had to go through all that shit. My wife and I had to go through all that um, to get to this point. And and now we're here. So we're happy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So much resonates. I mean, I I was, I was there 10 years and I had been raised in, in Texas. So uh, Mm. those winters, I can totally relate to Jasmine. I was, tired of the concrete jungle i lived um in beverly and i was just exhausted of the commute the early morning commute on the train yeah. with all these strangers and walking through the concrete jungle and i just i just wanted to see hills and and green stars. and stars <laughs> and you know not get pushed around and ah uh, yeah i was i was definitely done with it yeah. it's
1: such <laughs> but, a transition I think the funniest transition you know, is that when you come from some like non a non-big city, uh-huh. like rural, it doesn't even matter, even if it's a small city, and you come to a big city, the transition is that you get kind of like you're a little intimidated with all the loud noises and
2: uh-huh. people
1: everywhere. And eventually you get used to it, right? Yeah. And then yeah. It, when you when you move away from that, I don't know if you experience this, but when you move away from yeah. that and you go back to something that's more rural and less busy you're kind of, you're creeped out by the quietness (laughs) at first. It took me two weeks when I moved here. Like I used to walk outside and it'd be so quiet because we didn't just move to like Austin. We moved to Uh like Leander. So it was like a suburb of Austin. And talk about like being rural, It's completely different than anything I've ever experienced before. And so when I come outside, I'm like, it's so quiet. There's no sirens. There's no people walking Mm -hmm. around. There's no cars. Like what is going on? And I would look over my shoulder, like walking around, because it was too quiet. It was like being in a horror movie, like something's yeah. about to jump out <laughs> and attack me. Um and now, like when I go back to in the bigger city, it takes like a couple of days, but it's just like you know, you're like, why oh, are all these people? And you're like, <laughs> you're a little defensive, but That's the funny, I think that's the funniest part of the transition from going one place to another, but,
2: um,
1: it's good that you, you know, you got to go where you want to go and you got to get out. How long, when were you in Chicago? Uh,
0: I was there from 98 to 2008.
1: Okay. So 2008, so you probably... Oh, you just missed those polar vortex winters in Chicago. But
0: but I was there uh, in the 99 winter, which was, that's always my big story that I go to. It was my uh, first winter there. I didn't, I was raised on electric and up there it's gas and electric, but my uh, gas heater uh, went out, had no idea what a pilot light was and it was new year's Eve Everything is closed. Uh, I was living at North End Clybourne. Uh-huh. Uh, and at the time, the only thing open, of course, was the liquor store across the road. Of course. Took me an hour to walk through uh, waist high snow. My first time to ever have to do that, to go buy a, a set of matches and then be scared to death about turning on my, my heater my furnace so no i may have missed that one but i got the the 99 one or
2: right.
1: yeah you know, it's funny yeah. that you mentioned the 99 one that's that's the winter that i learned how to shovel snow <laughs> from people and made a made a couple oh. hundred bucks from it
2: <laughs>
0: yeah oh that was just oh it was so terrible and then yeah, yeah. just
1: oh I do not it was yeah it, it there's some of those winters can be really rough i mean that's why kind of like sparked our thoughts was that we had two those two winters right before we moved there was the polar vortex and Uh you know a couple times my wife was actually out of town but we had you know my daughter was like two at the the first one or three and uh you can't take the kids out it was Mm -hmm. they went out for like a couple weeks you have to leave your fought. like people when you you know went to texas with this storm hit here this past winter and everyone was like, "Put your faucet on." And I was like, "Ah, oh, it's not that big of a deal." And then, <laughs> then when it, it started getting a little bit colder, I was like, "Okay, maybe we might want to do that." But there, it was Chicago was negative fifteen degrees, and that was before yeah. the the windshield. With the windshield, it was negative forty degrees. Yeah. And so, like, you you literally could not step outside with any bare mm-hmm. skin because it would just like you would get frostbitten. Like your nose could get frostbitten. That's how cold it was. Yeah. And so it was just it's brutal. So when you go through things like that, the other thing I didn't realize is that when you move away from like a place like Chicago or like Seattle or something along those lines, where it's, it can be gloomy for a long period of time, mm-hmm. like Chicago, the it being overcast is, is, is something you don't realize for a while. But I, when I moved to Texas, that was one thing I noticed, we moved in the middle of August. And although it was hotter than all hell. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't used to that. Um, it, it was the sun just having sun for like <laughs> 90% of the year right. is incredible. Like even if it's 50 degrees, the sun is still out and shining. And just to have all that vitamin D truly changes <laughs> your personality. Like you're such a happier person. Yeah. And I was like, no wonder they like some people in certain parts of the country are just unhappy people. You know, they don't get sun. They don't get to come out and see the sunlight and experience that. So that was a big part of it, too. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So,
0: all right. Texas has been great, man. (laughs) Yes. I've been happy. And, And at the time, I was bringing my. Uh, then husband who uh, was born and raised. So I I feel like oh. you and Jasmine had a, a parallel to my experience where I'm dragging away. Well, for him, it was dragging him away from, you know, being born and raised in Chicago to down here. But I, I, I remember observing some of the similar things about we because we settled in, in Dripping Springs. And so he was <clears throat> doing that adjustment of Oh my gosh, I can see stars. Oh my gosh. It's too quiet. Oh my gosh. I hear you
2: know,
0: <laughs> the wildlife. Yeah. <laughs> right. it's, anyway, it's, let's, <laughs> let's get, get back on track a little bit here. Sure. Um, you, uh, you launched a, a video. Uh, how do I say it? You, you launched this online comedy show thing mm-hmm. and it, it rose to prominence for me partly because uh Richard, my, you know, behind the scenes comedy wham guru uh, was involved with it, but also because it was happening. It was necessitated by the fact that there was no live comedy happening uh, sure. after March of 2020 mm-hmm. and you were bringing something to audiences. And I know there were more than the shows that I listed in the introduction, but um, I, I, you were you were bringing entertainment to people obviously you were uh, well versed with video uh, mm-hmm. and uh, what was the spark of the idea to launch this because i what i don't remember is were you starting to produce shows in-person shows at that point when oh when yeah COVID so happened
1: yeah before COVID, i had already about three two or three I think it was three years of experience underneath my belt um I started comedy in Austin I started doing stand-up actually in Austin about five years ago about a year into moving here I was I had a you know kind of like an old soul but I had like uh I had a realization that like you only live life once and like Mm -hmm. to do you should follow your passions and what you want to do like because you don't want to die and be like shit I should have tried this and and you know, regret that. So comedy was, like I said, always a big part of my life. And I was like, screw it. I'm going to give it a shot. And so I really started studying and I started doing stand up. and through stand up, you know, I kind of experienced the Austin comedy community and uh, being also an entrepreneur and just kind of a go-getter. I was just like, I took some things and took matters in my own hands where I opened up a, I had an open mic at Buffalo Billiards for about six months. I met okay. some comedians through that um and then through that like I had a lot of friends in Leander who wanted to see me do stand up and they were very like supportive and loved everything I was doing um but they didn't want to have to drive into the city every you know week essentially and a lot of times when I was doing shows I was only on an open mic and um I didn't really understand the game quite back then like uh, I was you know, I'm very impatient. And, uh, <laughs> and so I was like, I want to be on shows. And I always, I also thought I was better than I was. And I was not very good. <laughs> and so I was like, no wonder people weren't putting me on shows. I like, I suck. But um, you know, that, that in my head, I was like, I'm, I just need a real audience instead of yeah. doing comedy <laughs> in front of, you know, five other comedians yeah. and see how the material is. So I could really get a good understanding of whether it's good or not. So um, I started producing my own shows, and I did my first one up in Cedar Park at a brewery, and we sold. And I so I took my marketing skills and I sold tickets, and they weren't cheap tickets. But I talked with my friend Dan French, uh, who's a longtime comedian who's originally from Austin, uh, and he he helped me out a lot, kind of navigating through comedy, also like helped me out with like producing a little bit, understanding like bring in higher quality headliners to really dictate and um, allow the uh, uh, the ticket prices to be a certain price point. And so um, he put me in touch with some of the, like kind of uh, national headliners here in town. He was actually the first one that did it for me. Uh, he was the first headliner at our show and we sold a hundred tickets. Sold a hundred tickets on an average price of about $17.50. So we pre- made pretty good money. I- excuse me I put out about a couple hundred bucks in advertisements and marketing for Facebook and uh, you know a, a, about a fourth of the people that showed up were actually my friends um, and the rest were people that I had never seen before that were just people who wanted to see comedy in the area and so we did it everyone had a really good time it was a great turnout we did it again the next month uh, we sold about 85 tickets that time and then um, I think we did it one more time after that I had about 90 tickets and then my business, my marketing business started to pick up. So I had to put that stuff kind of on the back end. Um, But then I, again, I took, I, the universe threw me a sign. Some people were asking me about comedy shows when I was going to do another one. And I was like, screw it. I'm going to do it. But this time the other shows I was doing, I always did like five or 10 minutes up top. And uh, and this time I was like, man, like I really want to do these shows. People want me to do these shows. There's demand. But the problem is that I don't want, I felt more pressure in having to do the comedy side than actually producing the show. Mm-hmm. So I was like, you know what, screw it. I'm like, I'm going to take off that pressure and just find comedians and just ha- let them do it and I'll produce the show. Like that stuff's easy to me. So sure enough, I did that. And again, like same thing. We had about 110 tickets. We were doing it on a consistent basis. We started doing it in like J- July and we, we did well, you know? And at, at that point, I would started getting my, my, I've always been very ambitious. And when I look at things, I always want to do things very big. So I had an idea of doing a comedy show, a a very large comedy show. And so I started looking into like finding, um, finding bigger comedians to come play and finding venues and so forth. And I started doing that. And, and, you know, I had the hardest time because people were basically agents were giving me fuck you offers. Mm -hmm. They're saying, Hey, you gotta pay us $200,000 for the show and this and that. And I was because they, because I was a nobody at the time. I was nobody. I had no relevance. I was very small time. Um, in their eyes, the Austin community was Moon Tower, Cap City mm-hmm. and C3, uh, or, or Live Nation, I should say The Live Nation had some comedy stuff, but that, that was really about it. And the, those people in town, Paramount too, obviously. And, and that was really about it. So, um, it was, you know, it was a struggle. A lot of people didn't talk to me, and then I, I made it a goal though of mine that in 2020, I was going to do, I was going to do uh, comedy full time. And so I actually put together my first big show. I found a venue in Austin that, that could hold up to about 300 people. I found, um, I got Dean Del Rey from LA who I actually uh, saw open for Bill Burr and I thought he was hilarious. Yeah. And I talked to him we worked out a really good deal. And I flew them out here and our, our first big show that was supposed to be at 300 people was March, uh, seven, oh. 2020. Oh, worst timing. In the
2: oh. World. Worst
1: timing in the world. So, you know, uh, ticket sales were very minimal. We had about 110 people that showed up. I was expecting like 300. Um, I was able to pay Dean and, and the other comics. Um, but I still lost money on the deal. Right. And, uh, and it was hard for me, and I was just like, "I was like, fuck this COVID thing." Like, I no one knew what was gonna happen. Yeah. But what I decided I didn't want to do was just sit on my hands and do nothing. So I was like, I talked to, and, and in February we did a show up here in Leander uh, with Carter Anderson called "In the Meantime." And I know how you were trying to say that in the beginning. Yeah. Trust me, like <laughs> I cannot say "in the mean" "meantime" correctly anymore. I always say "meme." Um, and so. <laughs> So my vocabulary has completely changed since then. Um, but I brought, I brought, uh, so he, we, him and I did a show and we did it live in front of the audience. Our goal actually, he, he had this idea for the show and I was going to help him produce the show. And our goal with it was, with, with it was actually to film it in front of a live studio audience and then, or a live, not studio, but live audience, and then put it out on the internet so people could see it. Cause it was kind of, it's a fun interactive yeah. show. And uh, we did it and we, we we did it without recording it but we did it the first time and it really went well with the crowd people really enjoyed it was fun it was different um, and then when COVID hit I was like you know what this actually could translate onto just the internet I'm like and you don't have to really be in front of an audience I mean the audience helps and we'll have an audience but we don't necessarily need um, a live audience to really make this work and because it wasn't truly stand-up it was just kind of like comedians riffing off of each other there was some roasting involved in it and it was just creating funny um memes is really what it came down to so we worked it out and then we launched it um i think like sometime in april i don't even remember what the day was but they uh we did the show and we did it on uh through zoom um because i was i was very well versed in zoom and using that for like video conferences and so forth and doing webinars that were like, hey, we'll just do webinars and then we could we could broadcast it out to Facebook. So we did it and the first one went pretty well. Like people, there was like, I think we got like a couple thousand views on it. Um, the second one we had some hiccups with where like I couldn't actually broadcast it live onto Facebook. So in order to do this correctly, I actually kind of like raked it uh, MacGyver style and I had my <laughs> phone Broadcasting onto my screen and my computer, and my phone was streaming live on Facebook. So everyone could see what was going on, but through my phone onto the screen. It was it wow. was so odd. <laughs> but again, it worked. And that one got a couple thousand views. So we and and through that, so I my I had a company at the time that we did the productions called Money in the Bank Productions. And so we started doing this show with, in the meantime, and people really liked it. I started having people reach out to And again, the goal was always to two things with this was that one, we wanted to provide an outlet for comedians who obviously weren't able to go out there and do live comedy anymore, but I didn't want to do live comedy through zoom or stand up because I just didn't resonate. So I was finding ways that we can kind of supplement that, that, that mixture or find a solution to this. And then also the goal was to bring people who obviously during this tough time, um, bring people laughter and joy and, and something that's entertaining that they normally would do in person, but they couldn't do. And so it worked. And through that, I actually started getting people who were reaching out to me. Like I had one guy who's a technical person and he was like, Hey, I would love to help. He's like, this is some things you could do, blah, blah, blah. And so we started working together. And so the technical side started becoming better. Um, then I started talking to some friends, reached out and said, like, Hey, listen, Um, if you need some help, I've always been interested in producing. I can help you out. I'm a good project manager. Uh, Brandy, who's a a friend, um, she reached out and she said that exact words to me and I was like, great, let's do it. And then my other friend, who's uh, a Ed, who's a programmer, um, by trade, he was like, Hey, I could help out with this side. So he brought him in. And then I talked to my friend, Eric, that I had known forever who lives in Milwaukee and he was, he's a branding design guy. And so, um, him and I were just talking and he was like, I told him my whole idea and what we were going to do. And he's like, I'm in. And so he helped start designing the the layouts of everything. And then we formed this, this team uh, together in this group. And we uh, decided to change the name of the company and and form it together. And, and instead of being Money in the Bank Productions, we came up with Big Laugh Comedy. And Big Laugh Comedy was going to be not just the production side, but it was. eventually we wanted to get into the live events, but uh, we just didn't know what was gonna happen. So the goal through the pandemic was just to provide laughter and an outlet for comedians and, and comedians across the country. I mean, eventually we, we had people who had shows that com- local comedians here in Austin. We had people in uh, the, the Pacific Northwest, Chicago. I mean, we had people in LA, kind of people all over, comedians from all over the world or uh, all over the the United States um, doing shows with us. And eventually we got to 10 shows. We had 10 shows running at one time and um, it was going well. And we had like views and it was, and we had a couple of sponsors at one point, but then like things, I think fatigue started hitting, you know, yeah. with people who went watching stuff online. Yeah. And um, we just decided that, uh, you know, we had to kind of take a step back and make some pivots and make some adjustments. And some shows were performing better than others. And we really got a taste like on a very small scale of how like the network works, right? Like, you know, networks put out shows they put out pilots. They, they expected to do well. If it doesn't do well, they cut them. And it's kind of the experience we were getting is that we were going to have to cut some shows or make adjustments and, and so forth. And so we did that. And um, but during that period, I decided during the pandemic again, uh, being the crazy fucking guy that I am, <laughs> I was like, I'm, I have some money saved up. I'm like, we can, you know, survive off this for a certain period of time. I'm like, I'm gonna go into this full time. Like my goal in 2020 was to do comedy full time. I'm like, let's do it, and uh-huh. so we we did it. And uh, you know, it was it was a little bit of a struggle. Like I, I was collecting unemployment for a little bit, and I had some other avenues because I wasn't making any money from it. Um, but eventually when, when things started to open up, um, the, the events came back and, and you know, I wanted to do events. I saw people doing it. I was like, oh man, I want to get back out there. I want to get back out there. I saw people doing these drive-in shows. I think Stephen Farmer was doing some and he got on the news a few times. Man, like I'm competitive. Like I support <laughs> people. I love seeing people succeed, but at the same time, I'm a competitive person and I want to do stuff. And if I wanted to do that and someone else was doing it, I got a little jealous and I wanted to fucking do it myself. So I decided, yeah. I was like, oh, we're going to look into it. So we started looking into places. I don't know. Do you want me to go into this? I know I'm like, I'm just <laughs> rambling, play John. Yeah,
0: well, you like asked. you're like a little autopilot. Just go. I mean, we're, yeah. I, well, I'm curious about what, what was that first show that, that you did and how did you find the venue? Because has it always yeah. been bulk and gas?
1: It, it has always been that. Um, okay. yeah. So to answer your question, I am like on autopilot because I don't like, I normally am the other side of this where I'm talking to other people uh-huh. and I let them talk. And yeah. so very little do people ask me <laughs> questions about myself. And so when I get that chance to do that, I'm always like, here's everything. Like, enjoy. Yes. I'm like, I need to get off my chat. Like maybe I should just go back to therapy. Like, maybe maybe that's should, really yeah. what I need. Like just a, an outlet so I could pay someone to listen to me talk for like an hour. Uh, every two weeks or something like that. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so uh, th- to answer your question, during that period, I was um, I-, I was looking into it and, and Ed and I and-, and the whole team, we started looking into like different places and how we could do things. And we were getting creative and we looked at actually some venues up here in Leander that had some options to do like a drive-in show. Um, then we, uh, we even talked to Stubbs to do show there, I got put in touch with the people at Stubbs and the GM, and we went there and just wasn't going to work out. So, um, needless to say, I mean, like again, the universe put put me in path with uh, a woman, Sarah Fleming, who um, she uh, she had she was actually interested. She had signed up to uh, do some production stuff with us for the online material, so she was helping us produce some shows online. And she happens to be very well connected growing up here in Austin. She happened to be very well connected. And mm-hmm. so she saw a post by Nick, who's the owner of Vulcan and he put a post on Facebook said, Hey, we're looking to open our doors again. Um, we're looking for these type of acts. And one of them happened to be comedy and wow. she sent me a screenshot of this. And she's like, do you want an introduction? It's like, yes, please. This is it'd be fantastic. And so she introduced me to Nick. And it took a little bit, took a couple of weeks to actually get Nick on the phone and really have a conversation. Excuse me. But when he finally talked, when we finally talked, he told me, it's like, listen, Brandon, he's like, I've been closed for almost eight months. Uh, We're looking to open back up. They were the largest EDM club in Austin prior to COVID. And then he was going to open up, but he had to do things a lot different. Like, you know, you have to six feet distance. And that was another thing for us was that we wanted to do things that abided by the rules of. Protocol for right. COVID, and so we wanted to be safe. We didn't want to be like a super spreader event or something like that. We wanted to respect it, but at the same time, we wanted to offer opportunities that people who did want to go out that felt safe or felt like they just wanted to go out and see something that they could do it in a safe manner. And so it, it really had to be the right relationship in the right setting. And Nick had opened up, and they were doing some shows, some EVM shows, but very social distance. They had tables. Um, you kind of had like stay in your, your pods or lanes. Uh-huh. Um, and it was a very limited capacity compared, like normally folk, it holds, I think 900 people standing, like standing room. Um, and so he was doing like, uh, I think it was like a hundred 150 people, you know, but seated. So it was much different. So we started talking and. He, he, you know, him and I were talking, he told me what his deal was. I told him what my deal was, what I could bring to the table. And we struck up a really good deal uh, together and they were going to handle the venue side. We were going to handle all the comedy side, um, even the marketing side of it. And we started doing shows in October of 2020. Um, Our first show was, I think actually might even been like in September, the end of September. Um, And our first show was uh, with a, a gentleman who has a, Dry Bar special Corey Michaelis, who's out of the Tacoma area, very funny comedian and uh, a professional comedian, too, really good guy. He came in and we, you know, we sold some decent tickets, we didn't do like huge amount. Um, but it was a, a good crowd, it was a good experience. Then we had Ida Rodriguez, who came in, and I was a big fan of hers, and uh, I was able to strike a deal with her agents. And the other thing I realized through this pandemic was that once we started having these, these events at, at Vulcan, um, and we are knocking at your door. Oh my God. (laughs) Like they were like, eventually like after a few months, so we had four, we took us four shows to get to a sellout crowd and the seller crowd was like 140 people. And then, um, and then the, the next show was Tony Hinchcliffe who Mm -hmm. came and headlined, uh, for our fifth show. And it was a Wednesday. And he was going to stop in and do a weekend in, in Dallas or something like that. And I talked to his agent. Now, I did this kind of strategically because I knew Tony. I, first of all, I was a big fan of Tony's, big fan of Kill Tony as a comedian, kind of coming up, wanting to do that. I listened to his, their podcast religiously. Yeah. And I knew his relationship with Joe Rogan. And Joe had happened to just move down here at that time. And I was like, and he had been here for like a month or two and wasn't really going out, but he had moved and everyone was talking about it. And then Tony, I booked Tony and he came through and I I talked to him. I got a text message that day of the show. And he's like, hey, Ron White wants to come uh, do a guest spot on the show. He's like, where can he park his tour bus on 6th Street? I was like, there's nowhere he's going to be able to park his tour bus on 6th Street i'm like but we have a green room if that's what you're asking and he's like yeah and so uh so then and so he, he uh okay
0: just he, just stop right there brandon okay, i mean okay all of this work that you've been doing and all this goal setting and like i want to do this in this competition i mean can you actually think about how amazing it was to get that text message <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah now that I look back on it it yeah yes at the time though like I did kind of freak out I was like oh man like Ron White like Uh the Ron White is going to be coming here I did have a little freak out moment but at the same time it was the day of the show so I was like I didn't really have time to freak out I was like I had to (laughs) care for this like Yeah, I was like, I had to, I called up Nick, I called up uh, the GM at the time at Vulcan, and we were just like working out the logistics. And and of course, they were freaking out a little bit because everyone knew who Ron White was. Uh And then sure enough, so like, and this is the thing is like, Tony went dark for a little bit during that period of time. And little did I know he was recording a podcast with uh, Joe Ah. at, at, at his studio. And so then I get a text message again. He's like, Hey, how's the parking situation? Down in Sixth Street, Joe's gonna come by and do guest spot too, and I'm like, holy shit! Wow. I'm like, this is well, because again, strategically, I'm like, Joe moved down here. I booked Tony. Tony's really good friends with yeah. Joe. Maybe there's a possibility, yeah. small possibility, but maybe there's a chance that Joe will come out and do stand up. And sure enough, not only was it Joe, but it was Ron White, and the three of them went up. And to- actually, Tony Casillas too. Was the opener, oh, I and I had never met Tony. And Tony is like one of the coolest people in the world, great comedian,
2: yeah,
1: um, really well liked guy. And they had all four of them one up on the in the show, and um, it was incredible. It was a sold out show. No one knew that Joe and Ron were going to be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ron hadn't done stand up in eight months since before COVID. Joe hadn't done stand up since he moved to Austin. So it was both like first times for wow. doing this. And it was just an incredible experience. And from there, um, things just really started to open up. You know, the buzz was throughout the city. Um, we tried to get some press on it, but obviously, press was the press was very um, strategic about how they were. You know, talking about shows and things that live events because they don't want to like promote that because then they could get backlash from the people who were like, Yeah, you shouldn't be going out and seeing yeah. events. But, you know, we still have people wearing masks, sitting down at the table, wearing masks, doing everything they were supposed to do, um, abiding by the, the, the rules and the laws um that the government uh, and the local government had put on us so um it was fine like we never had a, a a breakout or anyone reporting covid none of the comedians had ever talked like never everybody who came here would always get tests when they left and no one ever came back positive so that to me that was always a win Yeah, and we were doing things the right way that way but that specific show and this is why i love tony like i've developed a, a relationship with tony through this i mean he obviously him and i started talking I had his number. We started talking through text messages. He was deciding he was going to move down here. And so we just kept in touch. And um, he was always a, a good guy to me. And he is still a good guy. And we have become friends. Um, and that show, though, I, mean, I, owe, I owe a lot to Tony because that show put us on the map. It put yeah. us on the map in so many different ways. And um, it was a fantastic show. It was tremendous. The buzz built up around there. And then again, like the doors open from there, like I started getting calls from agents been like, Hey, I heard about you. What's your name? And the funniest thing I ever had happen to me <laughs> was this one guy from this agency who I talked to prior to COVID uh-huh. who basically like just closed the door. I mean, he was like, nah, you're, we're not going to work with you. Cause we work with Paramount and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And he, he like hit me up with an email and was like, Hey, I've heard a lot of good things about you. Let's <laughs> jump on the phone and get to know each other. And if I was a very petty person, I'd be like, you know, actually you deny me a few times. Um, but I didn't, I was just like, I, I played it or I talked yeah. to him and he's like, have we talked before? I was like, no, we've never really talked. <laughs> um, so I just kind of kept it hush-hush. But oh, man. in the You're back a better of my mind, person like, than I, I am. Never... <laughs> yeah. I, but I never forget those things. Like I really don't, I don't forget the people who rejected me. I don't forget the people who told me I'm not able to do this. I don't forget the people that say that I'm in a too bit big of a competitive atmosphere. I don't forget that shit. That shit fuels me actually. It fuels me a lot. And I love it. I love it. I'm like, reject me more because again, (laughs) I said the the world of sales, like how I grew up was that I grew up with the the mentality of like every no led to a yes, got me closer to a yes. So as much as people were telling me no, I knew that I was just getting closer to my goal. And mm-hmm. that's how I kept track of it. It's like, all right, if it took me 10 no's to get you to a yes, let's get to those no's really fast. So then eventually I could get to the yes. Yeah. And, and so that's kind of how I live life. It's like, if someone says no to me, it's like, all right, I'm not gonna cry about it. I won't forget, I won't cry about it. I'm gonna keep going at it. So yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of what led us into that event. And, and so, that, that really changed everything.
0: So as a fan of comedy, uh, let's, let's just take out Joe, Tony, uh, Ron. <laughs> Who is Sorry.
1: my, my okay. daughter is, you know, it's life is the, she's something's happening. So oh, whatever, okay. it's not that big. It's not, well, it's not that big, okay. but you All know, right. okay. to her it is. So.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course <laughs> it always is. <laughs> um, taking out those, <laughs> those huge names who is who is one of your favorite uh comics that that has has come through
1: my favorite <laughs> comics that have come through yeah I, I, sorry i have it's i have fine. a small town in my house it's like three kids <laughs> two dogs two cats it's it's I like i don't have personal space let's just yeah. put it that way yeah um and they also the fun thing with my kids is that through the pandemic, they actually were on the shows a lot of times. Um, ah. They they were actually my uh, Madison and Noah were quite famous on. Uh, 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 <laughs> if you're gonna do that, you got to go out there, okay, Mama. Um, the, they were they they did some reenactments for Monday Night Tops with Tremaine, and <laughs> it was some of the funniest experiences uh. and fun experiences. Like I look back on that, and we had a lot of good times, So we still try to do that quite often um yeah. so to answer your question um <laughs> wh- it, it's hard to say right like tony i owe a lot to um there have been some great people they're just you know I, I try to you know i so another person who recently um is is rocky Dell davis um who i don't think a lot of people know of but mm-hmm. he is one of the funniest guys he so he, so okay so this is the thing it's like all this stuff came up, right? Like, and, and as, as we started to expand, of course, people started reaching out to us and wanting to play Vulcan. And so, yeah. I, you know, as you can experience, as you can imagine, we get a lot of requests, and I get hit up on DMs and emails and text messages from random people, and uh, and then and you have to be I, I try to be careful. Like, we what we've set at Vulcan is we really try to produce high quality comedy shows, right? Um, it's not it's not always, we, we try to give people um, opportunities, but at the same time, like the comedy shows we put on are usually like national headliners mm-hmm. and people who have toured around and have credits. And so I got this DM from this guy, Rocky Dale Davis. Like I've never heard of him. He hit me up on Instagram. I looked on his videos and he um, he was funny. He was funny. And he also had like this clip that The Rock had gone out on instagram or twitter one of the social medias and said that his favorite comedian right now was rocky dale davis
0: oh my gosh i was like
1: yeah and i was like wow i'm like holy shit and so i was like that just like i was like all right well there's some credibility right there i'm like Mm -hmm. let's give this guy a shot we gave him a date and i was like hey man i'm like normally we run advertisements and if that's the case it's expenses it comes off the the split blah, blah blah and he's like no don't worry i don't need any ads he's like i got this i was like okay (laughs) all right, we'll see how this goes. And sure enough, we gave him a spot and he sold out that show without a single advertisement or promotion really on our eye. And, uh, I mean, we, we did promote and we got, you know, we are, we naturally have people come to our website and stuff like that, but he did everything his himself. And after sitting down and talking with him, He's he's younger. He's not like old, but he's very experienced. He lived with Ralphie May uh, oh. for a number of years. He uh, he came up the scene. He 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 struggled. Like you talk, like you you talk to his story. He struggled through all this, but eventually got to a point where he's selling tickets now and he's making money. He Actually, just got a deal. Uh, he's got a special coming out on Netflix. They're going to be recording in a few months, and so. Um, but talking with him, he you know. He talked about, the thing I admire about him is that he hustles. He learned how to do things the right way. He markets himself really well. He uses clips. He has a marketing team that he uses and he pays um, with the money that he makes and, and they do stuff for him. And, and it really works for him. And he's figured it out. You know, like he's, he's figured it out to the point where he's growing substantially. And when I first talked to him, I think he had like 60,000 followers on Instagram, And this was months ago. Now he's got 130 and it's only growing and it's just his popularity is growing. He's selling out places. He's doing improvs. Um, And eventually when this Netflix special is going to come out, he'll do he'll be doing theaters for sure. He's really, really funny. He's really good at what he does. But like just talking to him about the hustle and the marketing and all that, I was like, and, and he wants to give back too, right? Like he, mm. he's experienced all the struggles and the ups and downs. And I saw it, like I saw it firsthand. I was handing, this is one of my favorite stories because I was hanging out with him on Tuesday night, this past Tuesday night. And we had a show with Reed um, Marshall Becker and uh, it's called 420s and it's four comedians that go up and they have 20 minutes. Normally they're like larger comedians, they're headliners. And then he'll throw some guest spots in there. And so Rocky was one of the comedians on the show and they did it. And it wasn't like a huge crowd. But um, at the end, uh, Zach Bogus, who is uh, a producer, also comedian, but he's a producer for the Kill Tony show. He's a comedian here in town. Um, he, uh, he works at the Vulcan now, too, as a door guy. And he, uh, he I, uh, I forgot what I, I think I just asked Reed. I was like, hey, Reed. I'm like, Zack, can Zach do like five minutes of that? And I always try to get Zach some time and some of the younger people uh, that that are hanged around there. I try to get them time on some of these shows. And so he was like, yeah. So he put up Zach and it was just the very end. And Zach was, you know, not doing well. It was, it, it was, it was not necessarily him in this material, but it was just like the crowd was already two, two hours into comedy. they were starting to like kind of deplete and, and walk away. Um, but he was up there and he still was doing it. And I was sitting on the side and I wanted to watch that because I just like to watch the younger comedians and their sets and try to you know see if I can offer any pointers. But he um uh Rocky was watching it and he was like hey man he's like what is he doing on Sunday? Do you know if he's working on Sunday? I was like I don't know let me go ask Cam who's the GM and I asked Cam and Cam was like yeah he's working. He's like but um I could probably get him off if you need him to he's like why what's up I'm like I don't know hold on. So I went to go talk, talk to Rocky I told him he was he was available he could get off if he wants to he's like all right I'm gonna let him open up for me my Dallas show which will be probably between 200 and 250 people um and he's like and and because he's like I know this sucks this huh. sucks I've been through this this is horrible it sucks but you have to go through it you have to go through it he's like but I'm gonna give him an opportunity to go in front of 200 and 250 people and we'll see how he does and I'll give him an opportunity I was like fuck yeah wow. and so I told Cam Cam's like no problem I went and talked to Zach. I was like, Zach, I'm like, Hey dude, you want to go open up for Rocky in Dallas? You get about uh, like 10 minutes up top. And he's like, fuck yeah, I want to do that. <laughs> and I was like, yes. And that's the type of stuff that I love about this. Right. Like, yeah, it, it, it's just, and he's a good person. Like when you do stuff like that, and even like most comedians are like this. Okay. Yeah. Most Steve Byrne was one of my favorites because the man gave 10 fucking guest spots on top of the show. Now, mindless he, he did this kind of like after hours when he met all these comedians and he forgot that he gave out 10 spots <laughs> but he was very willing to give out all these yeah. spots to comedians not even knowing whether they were good or not and so <laughs> it, it didn't make my job a little bit harder because I had to- basically say but guys we can't put 10 people up yeah for steve like we have to and he he already had a feature too he had a feature and he had an opener and then he wanted to give 10 guest spots So we had to figure that Gosh. out but this is that that's the thing is that most of these comedians do this because they know
0: what it's like they
1: struggle they've been there and they, they yeah. want to give back and that's what i and tony's the same way i mean tony gives people opportunities all the time And I think, but Rocky has been one of those relationships. Tony's have been one of those relationships and a lot of comedians that come through, excuse me, most of the times I, I, we connect and, uh, and we just click and we're willing to help each other out. And it's been really great. Like it's not like I'm, I always tell people, I always tell the comedians when they come through, like what we're doing here is to make this really comedian friendly, right? Like we want good deals for them. So they get paid, um, graciously and, and and the amount of money they should be getting paid um we don't put you know restrictions on them as far as radiuses and so forth the only thing we ask is that if you do come in town and you're going to be on other shows just don't do anything that takes away from the ticket sales for the show because then it's gonna hurt both of us really yeah. and so it doesn't make any sense but beyond that everything else is butter you know like we we I, we want to take care of the comedians like. I think we pay pretty well for what other compared to other comedy clubs across the country and um you know we do that because comedians should be taken care of. They're doing a lot of the work. They're predominantly the people who are doing all this stuff, you know, and they're bringing the crowds, they're bringing the jokes. So so anyway, I, I don't know if that necessarily answered your question, but <laughs> uh, there, there's been, you know, I would say Tony Rocky Dell Davis um and a few others have, have been really some strong connections that we've, that I've made through, through these experiences. Um, but there's been so many too. That's just been like, Ally Mikofsky too. Like she's, she's fantastic. She's one of my favorites. Um, she's, she's so good. She is so freaking good. And one of my favorite moments was that she was, she, we did our, I talked about my fourth show. We did our fourth show. It's Craig Connett um, and, and uh, Craig, uh, I had been a big fan of him and his stand-up and his stories that he has on the internet. And he um, brought—he was like, hey, I'm going to have Allie McCoffsey come feature. And I knew of Allie because when I listened to Kill Tony, she was a regular on there. Right. And I always remember her voice was very distinctive. And I always remembered it. And she was very funny. And so I was like, oh, that's awesome. That's great. So she came. She featured for him. And before she even featured, I was like, hey, you know what? I'm like, I asked her agent, I'm like, would she be willing to come back in like a month, headline a a night here? And she's like, absolutely. And so we had worked out that deal. And so she came, she featured, and then we let everyone know that she was coming back in a month to headline. And when she came back to headline, she sold out. She sold out that entire show. Amazing. Like she's she's not very big, but she has such a strong fan base, especially here in Austin, that they came out. And I remember when she got up on that stage, People were cheering her name, like hey. <laughs> and it was one of the coolest things because she's still younger. Like yeah. in her comedy career, she's still younger, and so it was just so cool to see that. And she even came back and there was and headlined another weekend or just a night actually here about a month or six weeks ago or so. And uh same thing, she sold out, and she came up to me. She's like Brandon. She's like, I don't know what it is about this place. She's like, but I always have the best sets here, mm-hmm. and like just being able to talk and see her her growth and what she's going through and all these other comedians that's what I really love so it's hard to say one it's like kind of like having a shot ch- like having right. multiple children and being like which one's my favorite I don't really have a favorite I have different experiences and different relationships with everybody but there are some very memorable moments I'm having with some of these people that have been fantastic and it's just yeah. it's a fun ride you know yeah, yeah. okay Sorry, <laughs> you Sorry. got your <laughs> um, get my fix in. I yeah. hope you got your fix.
0: <laughs> I, uh, I have to do this. I have to talk about the controversy sure. as well, and okay. uh, there are there are two notable ones that have come up, and they all mm-hmm. essentially have to do with with clips that that have come out. And the first one was a news article which pretty much everybody panned as not a very well done uh, local news story where they had gotten a clip of you and the the Austin community was all abuzz because they thought the clip that aired of you was suggest was sounded like you suggesting that there was no comedy scene before COVID.
1: Oh, yeah, that's bullshit. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So there's that clip. And then, of course, you and I scheduled this interview about a month ago before Mm -hmm. the latest controversy, which was uh, not just not you, but it was in what everybody refers to as your venue, but even though it's Vulcan Mm -hmm. Gas, uh, of Tony and Tony uh, had was following Peng Dang, who had who has I, I have known him since the days of uh, featuring or hosting, I don't remember which, with Jeremiah Watkins, who I'm a huge, huge fan of.
2: Mm-hmm. And I've
0: seen him on, you know, as the, the band leader at Kill Tony. So I've, I'm familiar with both Tony and Peng and the clip that came out that just kind of blew up the, the universe a couple of weeks ago with Tony saying something, one, I, my opinion, 100% inappropriate, but it was a clip. Mm -hmm. and uh you and I are recording a couple of weeks since that uh clip was released so there's you know as with everything people get distracted and they forget but you know you got you got a lot of attention because it is your production it is Mm -hmm. your venue whether you know officially or not and so that thick skin, I'm sure, has come in very handy to deal with both of those controversies. And I know that you and I had some conversations behind the scenes about you know the the challenges of of each of those situations. Um, so you know, I, I know because comedy Wham tries to be the 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 diplomat, it is not my intention to go down your throat and and you know, tell you, oh, this was absolutely wrong to have happened. And why didn't you speak out uh, more vocally in in either of those instances but on the the flip side i know that there's a lot of people from the the what i'll refer to as a legacy austin comedy scene that were very upset by mm-hmm. by uh both of those clips so that's my sure. my my opening salve or self so how a how do you respond to that and and two Is there anything specific to those two clips that you want people to know?
1: Yeah, two things. Or one thing for both of those, actually, is context. It's context. Like, this is what people I don't think understand is that, like, like from someone who is from a marketing perspective, right, and someone also understands media, is that it's always about context. And you can, like, this is why the media is so... I mean, I've heard stories and horror stories about stuff like this before, but like, this is why right now, whether it's a liberal media outlet or it's a conservative media outlet or whatever it is, media is media. And they control the narrative of however they want things to be perceived and put out. And so with context, they can twist things around like shit. I could, I could take a video from painting set. And I could cut up a clip, and I could make him look super freaking racist if I wanted to. But I would take it out of context, right? And and that's the problem is when you take things out of context. And so what I learned was that the first one uh, with the, the 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 article from K-View was that this guy interviewed me for five minutes, asked me all these questions. I talked about a lot of stuff. Uh-huh. He took ten seconds of my talk, and he put took that out and put it in his own context, which was nothing of what I was talking about. What I was talking about and how he used my clip was that I was talking about how he asked me a question and I said, you know, Joe Rogan, a lot of people, a lot of these bigger comedians have moved here. But I said, people of all levels are starting to move here too because of that kind of this migration. And because of that, um, there is, uh, you know, there's a different sense of quality that is here. There's some good quality and there's some, and there's there's also a lot of other people that are moving here. And I said, We'll see how the scenes develop. And I don't remember exactly what I said, but they took that piece and they took and they basically put in a context to say it was we're gonna experience more quality, more quantity over quality for the time being. Yeah. And then they they went ahead and like promoted Cap City opening up in the fall, which I spent time talking about. Cap City and some of the stuff that I did not like about them in that article and so he still used my clip and even though he knew how I felt about that he still plugged Cap City the end of it and I was furious I sent him an email as soon as I woke up and read the article watched the video I sent him an email. I was like what the fuck are you doing like why are you making me look like this blah blah, blah. and I had no other way I didn't know what to do is the first time so I started asking some people that I knew in the media. And I, and I always like to do things that I feel is right. I've kind of been like, I, when I was younger or I was like college days, they would call me Rocky in a sense, because I was never (laughs) very aggressive to like fight with people. But if you fucked with somebody or you fucked with me, like I would fight you back. Like I'm I'm not, I'm not a, a a lack of a better term. I'm not a wussy, right? Like I'm I'm not going to let someone just walk over me um, or walk on me. And so I speak up when I think things are wrong. And um, that was wrong. That was wrong. That was not right. That was taken out of context. Uh, although I'm like, I still feel a certain way about the Austin community pre-pandemic, it's not necessarily that I disliked it. I just thought there were some things that were wrong about it. And there's nothing wrong with thinking that there's improvements on something. Right. And I don't think that I think it's getting better because of the migration. Right. And that's that's how I feel about it. And if people don't agree with me, that's perfectly fine. I have no problem with that. But at the same time, it's like you don't have to get very pissy about it. And, and again, it's context. And this is my problem. I think in both situations is that people I don't know what it is, but people as soon as they see something, they react instead of thinking like what is both sides of the story? What is the full context of it? Like thinking through these situations to use like some of your own brain power to understand that, like, not don't believe everything you read and you hear. You know, like there's always two sides of the story. I think there was, some, I forgot one comedian had a joke. Uh, it was a famous joke. It's not probably the best uh, example, but they were like, you know, they're like, yeah, you know, like when a, when a woman gets beat up, you know, it's horrible. But have you ever asked a guy what they did, what the woman did to deserve that beating? Mm. No, again, horrible context, but it, again, it's like two sides of the story, right? Like maybe that was a bad example, but um, th- there's two sides of the story at all times, and that was the problem with that. And and, and what I, I jumped on Instagram Live, I talked about and I explained exactly what I say because it was fresh. I had just done the interview the day before and the video is still up on Instagram. If anyone wants to go and watch it on the big laugh comedy network, Instagram um, page. And I shared my feelings about the situation and what I said. And there's still a lot of people who just came out and just was like, hating. they didn't want to hear anything. They heard what they wanted to hear and they made up their minds at that moment and they were not willing to change it. And, and I believe from that specific part of it was that there's a there was a lot of people who decided not to do anything during COVID from a comedy perspective. And that is their choice. And I respect their choice. And then it's perfectly okay. There's nothing wrong with that. However, there was other people who saw an opportunity who started to take advantage of that opportunity and they were doing it. Right. And because of that, things had changed. And and it's a natural it, it would happen in any situation. And because of that, I think people are just upset. That there was kind of there was this change that happened without them being included when they were such a big part of it pre-COVID. And when mm-hmm. that article came out, they didn't interview anybody that were kind of like the, the old or, or I forgot how you described it, but the, the legacy the, 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 <laughs> the legacy comedy community in Austin. They didn't really interview anybody that they were interviewing all the people that were that, that were coming up. And so I think there was some you know, some things there that people were upset about. There probably was some stuff that they were upset about themselves or about the situation. um, And they just took out on other people and took out on me and took out on on the article and they just have things made up in their mind. And I truly believe that's the same thing that happened with the Tony situation. Um, What he said, that word, I don't condone, I don't condone uh, racism or hate, uh, but I've said this a number of times is that comedy is an art. And when you go on that stage, it is art. And what they say is a safe zone. That is the stage. No one should sit there because I guarantee if that video did not come out, no one would have walked out of that place and posted or said anything about it. Um, there might've been some people who maybe there might've been a handful of people that said, I would never want to come back and see Tony again. And that's perfectly fine. But that is, that is who he is. Now the choices, words were bad. The, the There was just no jokes on the top. But if you watch, and, and the funny thing is that the the, the video was released in full, Peng said, mm-hmm. set and Tony set back to back, so you can see the full context. Again, not the best of jokes when it came out, but he was playing the character who's playing into what Peng was saying because Peng had some jokes about China being, you know, inferior to America, America like borrowing money from China mm-hmm. and um, and, and so, and the funny thing is I do know Pang. like I've, I've worked with him. He, I first met him when Jeremiah did headlines here in Austin and, and immediately I liked him. I thought he was very funny. Um, and I had him back a number of times. I mean, we, shoot, i i recorded an interview for him that we're going to put out, but after all this, it's like <laughs> this different story now, yeah. um, <laughs> You know he shot himself in the foot because he, he he clout chased. That's what he did, and unfortunately, there's kind of this world now where because everything you watch in that video is premeditated to the edits. Like if you see where he edits, if you watch the full clip and what and, and what Tony says, he edits from pussies to pussy to make it sound like he even dropped one more um, uh, one more uh, like uh, hit to pain but it wasn't, he was calling everybody pussies, but he said, you pussy. And he made it sound like he was talking directly to Ping. Like these little, he he edited that video um, in Chinese subtitles and dropped it at five o'clock in the morning before he did it to the United States. Like mm. he, he sat on that video for o- almost a week. He edited it himself, his friend, who we have very strict rules about recording videos. We record videos for the comedians if they want them. But we control them. No one else gets them except for those comedians. Pang had come there and he had uh, asked if his friend could record his set. And I said, yes, because I've never had him. I've never had a problem with this before. And I said, yes, his friend continued to record into Tony's set.
2: Mm. And that
1: is not okay. That is illegal. We say no recordings. We yeah. have told him they did not have permission to do that. And then you can even hear in that clip in the, when Tony first gets up there and starts saying this stuff is that his friend is, who's recording it is laughing. He's laughing in the background as he's recording it because it was a joke. And that's the context is that when you see that clip it is fucking horrible, so bad. It looks a, a tremendous, like it just looks like the worst thing. He looks like the biggest racist, but I know Tony isn't. He's friends with paying or was, he had put paying on opened the shows a couple times. Mm-hmm. He uh, was part of the group. He had been on the secret show with death squad Four or five times I had put him on there. He sent me messages after that show, was like, Thank you, Brandon, so much for having me on. Here's my email. If you get that, um, if you get some of the, the uh, photos, can you send them to me? Um, as soon as he posted that video, he deleted our entire conversation on Facebook Messenger. Everything. Uh-huh. He scrubbed his social media. He, uh, because he had jokes about um, saying the N word. Um, in in Japanese, and then he referenced the N-word and actually says it, and that's a joke. And he has clips of these kind of different racial jokes, but he scrubs all of it, scrubbed all of it off the internet. Shoot, there was just a a tweet that that someone screen captured and put it out there that he has a joke where he tweets out the word kike. Kike, I'm Jewish. Like, I could take offense to that. And like, this is what I mean, is that when people don't look into the full story of everything and they just make up their own minds on things then then nothing is going to happen like the, what bothers me the most about this part is that he he's taking away from the stop Asian hate movement first of all he's using it to his advantage it's no different than if a woman came out and cried wolf and said that during the me too movement that they got raped but they didn't that would be horrible because it would hurt that movement. They would take away credibility from people who are actually victims in these situations because then now you have this one bad apple or a few bad apples that are crying wolf that takes away the credibility of someone talking. So when you have one bad person that had then proven to be, completely fabricating this incident to make it look like something for their own narrative, then it, it loses credibility for everyone else. And everyone else is questioning, is this person really talking about it? Is it? So someone could get another Asian person get beat up or experience a racial experience and people might not believe it because they see now that someone can do this and take advantage of the situation. And then not only that, but like he's hurting a person's life, a livelihood for his own Personal gain. That's all he did this for. He didn't do this to make a a, make a statement for the stop Asian Asian hates. He Mm. did this for his own personal gain. Like he was clout chasing from the get go, and that's what bothers me the most. And I I had not said anything. You're you're getting exclusive. You're like Barbara Walters. (laughs) Um, But I I had not said anything out of respect of the situation, out of respect for Tony. He hadn't said anything. I had talked to him throughout this the whole experience. Um, and you know, and, and, and I, I, I felt like what I also experienced through this first moment with the cave view article is that as much as I try to explain myself, people already have made up in their heads, like the the, really there, what, what could I say different that would change most people's minds? Not much because they've kind of made up their minds. Um, I don't believe in this stuff. I really wanted to come out and make a statement. But a lot of people were just like, Brandon, let it settle, you know, figure this out. And I still feel strongly about this situation, that it was it was a horrible move. It was a bad thing for him to do. Um, it ruined it. Well, not ruined. I mean, Tony still the funny thing is that when that full clip came out, people got to see a lot of people got to see the truth. And so, yeah. you know, he, he's not a racist like I've been around him. I've been around racist people. OK, I've been <laughs> around racist people. Um my wife during the pandemic, my wife is half black, half Puerto Rican. During the pandemic, she was driving down in Leander down a road at 10 o'clock in the morning, and these two little white punks yelled out and called her the N-word at the car. Hateful. That is hateful. I've experienced that. I'm Jewish. I grew up in a non-Jewish community. I have been hated on. I've had I have Mexican friends who are my best friends, who I've seen the police discriminate against them. I have seen, I'm 38 years old, I've seen a lot of fucking bullshit, right? I've seen a lot of racism, I've experienced it. That is not racism. And anyone who thinks that's fucking racism is stupid. Plain and simple. Like you can quote me on that, you people can get upset that I said that. It's plain and simple. When you don't use your mind to think through situations and understand this context, then you're just an idiot. You're an idiot and you're part of the problem. And that's part of the problem with this whole cancel culture is that these people get these things and and the other thing is that they're calling the, the the funny thing is because we're getting some of this hate that's spilling over to us about Tony, right? And we get this stuff. And and when I and the media uh, of course spins everything around and and they put it into the narrative they want to. But people are, are, are starting to like they they they're threatening us. They're calling us names. They're doing all sorts of things. They're calling me a coward. All this stuff. But the, the funny thing is that they're bullying somebody who they think is bullying some somebody else. Right. And like yeah. does two wrongs make a right. No, like, like what the fuck did your parents do to teach you that you don't know that two wrongs aren't, don't make a right. Like Jesus Christ. This is, and this is what blows my mind, man. It's just like, unfortunately, there are people who just don't know how to think for themselves and they get too caught up in this, in this hoopla. And, the, and, the, and, and like, they just sit there and they, And it's like they want something to be upset about. And so as soon as something happens, and then then there's a lot of petty people out there too that might have not had a really good experience with Tony. And so they found this opportunity to exploit him. And and they even furthered the situation. Um, I know a gentleman who said that he called TMZ on the story and because he had a bad experience with Tony. And, And like, to me, that's just a bitch move like that. You don't do stuff like that, man. They're like, like you got a problem. And that's the other thing with paying is like, if you had a problem, go talk to them. Like, that's how you resolve situations in real life. If someone who you were friends with or had a, a working relationship with did something that hurt your feelings, you go and you talk to them first. And if there was no situ- like Tony even tried to call him and text him. He wouldn't pick up. Mm. He tried to like apologize and resolve the matter with him one-on-one, but Payne never picked up and he never did anything about it. And now he's completely dark because the truth is coming out. And when the truth comes out, his career is over. I'm like, there's no way this guy is gonna, and and it's so silly because he had a good opportunity. He was a funny guy. He had a career coming up, but he decided to do this this really silly move. And now it's just, it's gonna haunt him for the rest of his life. Yeah. So I know but a lot of people (laughs) probably don't agree with me on some of this stuff and then it's fine and I'm okay with not agreeing, but this is what I've always said is have conversations. Instead of people calling people names, instead of trying to bullying somebody about it, have a conversation. That's how we make a difference. That's how things change is by talking through. I mean, I had one person, I posted something on Facebook and, and somebody made a comment and it was a person that I knew, a very smart guy of Asian descent, and um we went ahead and had a conversation behind the scenes and i i made all these points that i was making and he agreed with me but he's like but he still you could just tell he still had it made up in his mind that yeah. he didn't like that that scenario and it's like okay i get it like people can get mad and it was it was a bad word it was a bad joke it was horrible timing um and it just didn't work out and that's that's unfortunately what happens but and not to say, but because I don't want to take it away, like that, that, that was that. Comedy is what I think a lot of people, a lot, of the public don't understand is how comedy works. I have had comedians. I've seen comedians. Of all races go up on the stage. I've seen white people drop the N-bomb in jokes. I've seen Mexican people drop the N-bomb in jokes. I've seen Chinese people drop the N-bomb in jokes. I've seen people say the word kike. I've seen the people say the F word. I've seen people say um all sorts the, the S word in relations to to you know Mexican and Hispanic people. Like I've I've heard those slurs used on stage. Right. I don't I don't agree with it. I don't. I don't think a joke needs to have a racial slur to make it a joke. However, when you're in comedy, it's art, and they walk that line, they walk that edge, and they, and, and, and comedy is about freedom to talk about things that you find funny. And if, if, you, if you don't like it, and this is something else I've learned, if you don't like what that person says, then don't listen to them. But it doesn't mean that's a direct reflection. Tony isn't walking around with a swastika on his fucking mm-hmm. arm. He's not carrying carrying a tiki torch through the streets in south carolina or wherever the fuck that was yeah you know he's not doing these things he doesn't have a background of being a racist and that's what people not understand like it's all right like like the the governor or the was the mayor of uh, uh new york when he came out that he was like you know all these bigger political people who were coming out with like the me too movements or sexual harassment They come out with one person, then another person, then another person, another person. And then once you get to like seven or eight, you're like, holy shit, there's really no denying this at this point. Like maybe one or two that could be like, well, maybe it's just like they're taking it the wrong way. You know, you start to kind of question, you read into the articles, and then you you get to seven or eight, or even beyond that, like even heck, even five or six, you're like, wow, that that's a little too many. That's too many circumstances for this to like not be true. Tony doesn't have five, six, or three or four incidences when he's using a racial slur. Like it's just, there's no evidence there. And so this is my point is that people just don't look into it. It was a bad scenario, bad timing. And people really need to get off the fucking high horses and use the brains and think, and like, think through situations, calm their emotions and just use the brain. And, and, and like, at the end of the day, if you just don't like him, whether you like his humor or not, then don't be a fan and move on. He's got a lot of fans who understand his comedy and that he's a roaster and that's what they like. And there's a lot of people who are the woke people that don't like mean comedy or roasting or whatever they dub it. Then don't listen to people who do that. There's so many comedians in the world. Go listen to somebody else. There are, and there's a flavor for everybody. Really there is, there is flavor for people who are super woke. There are flavors for people who like clean comedy. There are flavors for people who are like racial jokes. There are, you know, there's people who walk that line. And so you can find everybody. So if you don't like them, don't pay attention to them and move on. But again, Tony's not a racist. This was all uh, premeditated to the fucking T and it it, it aggravates me because it just, it does like the fact that he scrubbed all our messages that we had on Facebook messenger, like going back for like months till till January, when we first started talking, he like, he Mm. scrubbed them all. And like, that is not a behavior of somebody who is truly trying to do something that's right. Right. When you're trying to hide stuff from sure. because you put something out, that is suspect suspicious. It's very suspicious. Yeah. And so yes. So that is how I feel about this situation. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've held this in for so long, Valerie. I've held it in for so long. I wanted to say it you got the exclusive, I'm glad we honored. got to do this together. I am yes. so
2: honored.
0: Uh, I don't know if this
1: is good or bad for you. Yeah, but, hey.
0: <laughs> yeah I don't either. I don't either. Uh, I'm sure that there are people that are are going to want to hear They're going to argue with me, they're and then, gonna, that's fine. And they're going to come after me for whatever reason, because that's that's the nature of things. And here's exactly here's my my response to what you've said and what I've pieced together, because again, my thing is comedy wham should be as neutral as possible in things but what i can say from my experience so i will say first off the top the racial slur i think that was a lapse in judgment uh, Mm -hmm. on tony's part
2: correct
0: i i did see the clip but i also waited to see the full uh peng set and then the most of tony's set and you know my my conclusion was Yep, that's what Tony does, and the racial slur still elapses in judgment. Sure. But I also, because I've been a super fan of comedy for years, and I was I listened to Kill Tony for years. I also know that you know he's had Malcolm Hatchett on as, as the paid regular uh, for the Kill Tony show. Uh, he's had I mean the great Bill Montgomery, William Montgomery is is uh, on, and although he's you know white guy, that's fine. <laughs> But I know that- David
1: Lucas is a regular. He's a black guy. There you
0: go. Yeah. So I know that Kill, uh, sorry, Tony is a roaster by nature. So Mm -hmm. that's what you can expect from him. But I also, from my own observation of listening to Kill Tony for many, many years is the first impression that you get is that Tony hates everybody that comes up for that one minute set. That's your first impression. Mm -hmm. But if you keep listening, he is very quick to encourage the person that there is a nugget of talent there, Mm -hmm. but he is more than willing, again, because of his roasting genetics, he's more than willing to go lay into the person that uh, does not need to be on a stage. Mm -hmm. But I've also heard him be very, very kind to the person who doesn't belong on a stage but went ahead and went for this one minute shot. And I think if, if anything, again, lapse in judgment on that, but as part of the whole picture of who Tony is, they should listen to, to kill Tony to see the many dimensions that he has and who he is. And you're right, I've not heard the groundswell of people coming forward Uh, to say, well, you know, he he did this uh, against me as, you know, and I am this race or that race or, you know, this uh, gender uh, identifying person. Sorry, there's my cat's butt for you.
1: (laughs) Okay. I have two. I see those butts all the time. It's all right.
0: Uh, So yes, people should get the context for sure and form their own opinion. And what was interesting is you said something early on and as you were talking about your perspective on on how the whole situation played out is art truly is comedy or comedy truly is art because there's ugly art my opinion Mm -hmm. there's beautiful art but that's my opinion and you may think that the thing that i think is the most gorgeous art of all is atrocious and so go to the renaissance art museum i'm going to go to the contemporary art museum and there's a place for both of us as fans as producers and we just have we are stuck doing our best in the circumstances that life hands us and yeah it's not perfect i'm not going to say the perfect things you're not going to say the perfect things but Mm -hmm uh to put an uh end cap on it talk to us and you'll find out um yeah yeah
1: i I had i I love that analogy though art though because i've used that before too and it's like you're right like art is different it's all about perception right or Mm -hmm. or, yeah, perspective perception and and how you interpret it right Mm -hmm. like you said one person looked at it that way My, my example i use for people is like penises. Penises are the most ugly thing in the world. <laughs> However, you can have an artist who can take a, a drawing of a penis and turn it into something magnificent mm-hmm. that someone will pay thousands of dollars for. Also, someone could take a, a sculpture and sculpture, put a sculpture of a penis and someone will buy that for thousands of dollars. Yeah. But again, <laughs> would you want a penis sculpture in your house? Probably not. But there are some people that do. Yeah. So like that's art though. That is art. So yeah. when people don't understand that shit, it's just it's so funny to me. It really is. Yeah.
0: But uh, I, I hope I, you I, like
1: that analogy. I've been holding on to that one for a while.
0: <laughs> you heard it your first. So many firsts. <laughs> <laughs> um I, I did de- I definitely uh, don't want to take away from the people who were hurt by the use of the racial slur. Um, yeah. I, I think I think consequences make sense. Uh, to send a message to somebody who does use a, a racial slur who, who doesn't have a, a spot. And it sounds like from what uh, information you've laid out, I mean, it sounds like it's on both sides. Uh, there is lapse in judgment about using a racial slur because there's there's history behind it. And there are people that have been, uh, as a culture, as a race, have been uh, hurt by the use of racial slurs. And I, you know, this is, this is definitely the... Um, I'm, I'm not... I don't know. I I, I I have conflicting opinions as to whether or not I feel like I belong in a cancel culture, or if I'm a big cancel culture kind of person, because I do think uh, people get their consequences as they come due. And it just all, that's how things work out sometimes. Um, but yeah, I, I don't want to take away from them, but I do think that people need to Form their own opinion. Do the complete research before um, they they form those opinion and, and not be too too quick to to rush to a decision.
1: One one hundred percent.
0: Yeah. So now that we've dealt with that, we are running so long, and i I appreciate how much time you have spent with me uh, this this afternoon, this morning. I um I want to know like you as. The, the CEO of Big Laugh Comedy, I, I feel like you don't have to change what you've been doing because mm-hmm. you have all these people that have been knocking at your door saying, I, I want to perform uh, there at Vulcan. Um, but is there anything that changes for you as a result of, of learning to navigate some controversy?
1: Yeah, I mean, one we we've now eliminated the usage of phones at mm. the shows. Like we have the Yonder bags
2: ah, that okay. um,
1: that uh, Dave Chappelle and Joe Rogan and a mm-hmm. uh, number of people use. And so we, uh, as soon as that happened, we we talked about getting those um, to protect everybody. Like in all honesty, we started implementing this week, this past week, and that has not just been great because it makes comedians feel a little less like on edge that they can you know, trust the audience. But at the same time, actually it, it's, it makes the the, the audience more Attentive. involved in the show. Yeah, mm-hmm. the attention, the tension is better. And and that's truly what comedy, like don't get me wrong. The shows aren't very long. They're between an hour and two hours, like put your phone away. And I know how it is. Like the first time I had to put my phone in that yonder bag, I was like itching like a fiend. I was like, oh my God, my phone. what is going on? I need to see what the world is doing right at this moment. But then after like 10 minutes of withdrawal, I like it, it subsided <laughs> and I got to like experience the show and just watch and laugh and learn and yeah. like just be in the moment. And I think that's what we're really losing in all this. Everybody wants to capture that next moment. And, and from a marketing perspective, I have a hard time because I want people to take photos so they can put it out there so they can use, so we can spread the word from a marketing perspective. But again, art, is art and these things, as you see, like these things can be twisted around. So we want to protect both sides. We want to have a great experience with comedians. We want to have a great experience for the customers and people who are coming into our fans. So I think that's really the best, best use out of that. Um, so you know, learning from that, and you know, we're so as much as like people reaching out and, and we're doing pretty well with our shows. I'm always trying to improve, and 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 this is honestly like. I don't want to, I'm not going to get into too much detail. Maybe we can come back and talk about this in like next six months when things, some things change, but like, this is just the tip of the iceberg for us. Like Mm -hmm. we have a large plan of doing a lot of things and impacting the comedy community and uh, being a big player to allow everybody from uh, the, the open micers to the professional comedians have a platform and a stage and opportunities and to learn and to grow and to launch careers and to make careers even better and just to benefit the, the whole this society in general because i feel like comedy still gets like like they're almost like this the redheaded stepchild you know and when it comes to genres like you have like action and dra- drama is the biggest one you know drama action and but comedy is kind of get, is, is is almost in a sense kind of getting them like left on the wayside and and almost is deteriorating to a point where it's not as big and you know their standup is is still growing and, and that's the beauty is that there's still a lot of stand-up up there but um I, I just feel like there's there's so much to be done and there's so much opportunity out there that um you know we we see those things and we want to really help uh bring more joy to people in their lives like if there's anything we learned through this pandemic is that we need to laugh a lot more yeah right? like we need to laugh a lot more everyone needs to relax a little bit like even through this controversy it's like if people were really truly fans of comedy, they like might not be so butthurt about all this stuff and they might be able to see through some of these. And and that's kind of where, like, I think the majority of the backlash is from people who just don't understand comedy and how the art works and they're not a true fan. And so um, what hurts me the most with all this is that the comedians who jump to conclusions right off the bat and they don't understand how it is to be on stage and something happens or, you know and that and that's where like because i've always been that person where i try to i don't look at people uh, a certain way i try to take myself out of my shoes and put myself in their shoes and I've, i was taught my entire life is that uh you know no matter how bad you have it someone else has it worse and um there's there's always i mean that shit my mom used to take me when we were kids for like christmas we used to go to uh, battered women's shelters and um in Chicago and we would play with these kids who were living in a shelter and I was living in a house and had all these toys and we'd bring toys and we'd play with them and I was like man like talk about being grateful like you get to see these things and it's real life experiences and and that's what I don't think a lot of people nowadays see this they're not grateful they're not great like they don't understand that there are a lot of struggles and people are going through stuff and 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 they just jump to conclusions too, too much. So anyway, I, I'm, again, I'm rambling on and kind of going <laughs> on a different path there. So I'm trying to keep myself back on this path. Yeah. But, I, you know, you, you have to, I, I believe that you'll have to learn it. And what I love is like right now in Austin, the community is growing, right? The community is growing. We have a number of clubs that have opened up. We have more clubs that are apparently going to be opened up as well. And I think with all that, it, it comes a healthy competition, a healthy and, and, and it should be a community at the like, same time. Like I've talked with Rebecca from Creaking. Okay, excuse me. I love her. She's fantastic. Um, R- Rob uh, Morris from the Romo Room, fantastic. Um, you know, I've heard good things about the Sunset Strip. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and things just keep on growing and growing. They still have these like individual producers who are doing bar shows and those are still good. And you see there's a lot of opportunity for everybody No matter where they come from um, and whether they lived here before or they just moved here, um, whether, you know, no matter or if you've been, you know, six months into it or you've been doing it for 16 years, you know, there's opportunities for everybody now in Austin and, and uh, it's only going to get better. And I think it's great. And when you have this kind of competition, it pushes people to get better, It kind of forces you to get better, because if you don't get better, You're gonna fall to the wayside, and you're not gonna have anything. And so, um, as much as like some people, like I've had friends tell me, like, "Oh yeah, and you're like top of the total pole, and you guys have been doing all this stuff, and you had like, you know, had all this." I don't feel that way. I I don't. I feel we have a lot of room and for improvement, and I think we're only gonna get better. And um, you know, and it's just you just gotta grow. You can't you can't sit and just be stationary like right. that's not how things work uh in any type of business you got to be able to grow and adapt and so um i'm definitely learning a lot of how to deal with media and people i mean i've already known how to deal with people but like the media stuff is yeah. new the, the limelight you know it's the, one of my funniest things about all this though valerie is that and i laugh about this with everybody is that uh vulcan vulcan gets because vulcan's the venue they get a lot of the recognition and like Nick and I talk, we're partners, right? Like, we're partners. Yeah. He, he says, when I walk in that club and it's comedy night, Brandon is an owner at that club. And so, but when when people are talking about Vulcan, when they're talking about shows, whether it's on podcasts or afterwards, Joe Rogan has dropped uh, Vulcan's name maybe five or six times on his podcast. However, he's never once mentioned Big Laugh Comedy. Now, when Tony's controversy came out and all these articles were like, Racist comedian drops slur at uh-huh. big laugh comedy. It's no longer Vulcan. It's big oh. laugh comedy. TMZ reported it as big laugh comedy. USA Today reported as big laugh comedy. It's just like, but you know, like they say, like uh all press, any press is good press, I guess, in a sense. Sure. So, <laughs> yes, exactly. That's why I said, sure. We'll, we'll, we'll see how that turns out. But uh, honestly, it really hasn't uh, Effective is too bad in, in a lot of lights. I mean, we see people now that walk by the street like, oh, man, that's Vulcan. And, uh, you know, and, and, and the name's out there. But, um, again, just to go back to so you got to grow, you got to adapt, you got to move forward, and you got to keep uh, getting better. Can't yeah. can't just sit there and, and be content with where you are. So that's where we're at. And I'm, yeah. I'm excited with the future of the Austin comedy community and the future for Big Laugh Comedy and just future for all comedians that decide to come through Austin.
0: Yeah. Fantastic.
1: Okay. And thank you so much for having me on. I really do appreciate it. I know we've been, I'm very long winded and I have a lot to say. Um, I can be very passionate about these things. You also caught me like I'm pretty restful right now. So I'm like not dragging through. I yeah. know I have a talk today. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. And let me like, I feel like I should send you Venmo for like $125 for our therapy session. Today. Oh my Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just let me talk yes, and get you things can off my chest. A comedy
0: wham. <laughs>
1: <laughs> fantastic you hear that people yes help, help out Valerie
0: <laughs> yes I do a lot of therapy I, I get that so many times during my interviews that yeah. you know it's like oh and, and one thing I want to say too is
1: that I, I really appreciate what you guys do right like comedy wham and, and what you do not only just the podcast but what you do for the, the awesome community um, people always hit me up they're like hey can you get me on some shows I'm like hey I can get you on some of our shows we don't have a whole lot of shows that we can get people on but i'm like there's so many fantastic opportunities now I'm like if you want to see where things are at go to comedywham.com. you know check out all the events on there you can see the people who are running the shows you can reach out to them you know and if you need some help i'm willing to help but like i, I always turn i tell them to go to your website yeah. first and foremost uh because it's just the place to go to when you're looking for comedy shows
0: yeah i appreciate that i do the same thing people ask me and i'm like i don't know i i, I run one show so just go out there <laughs> do your homework do your homework exactly <laughs> okay use we're your gonna, website yeah use my website <laughs> all right brandon i have we're gonna we're gonna go into the home stretch here okay. just a few more minutes but first sure. let's uh do my closing question Okay. You've been talking a lot about the future. So pick one word to describe your future. Big. Oh, nice plug. (laughs) Nice plug. So since, since this is audio only, people don't know that I've been uh, sitting here uh, looking at Brandon with big on a shirt because uh, he's wearing, he's always, I always see you wearing your t shirt, your big life comedy t shirt. You're such a promo it's marketing man. Marketing 101. You're such a promo man. I know. I Here I am. I'm working, wearing my purple rain t shirt. I love
1: that shirt, though. It's a fantastic <laughs> shirt. I'm jealous. <laughs>
0: Okay, well, that is a wrap on Comedy Wham presents Brandon Lewin. Tell us where we can find you on social media and uh, tell us about your upcoming big, big projects and excitement.
1: Absolutely. So we have um, comedy, uh, we have uh, live comedy pretty much five days a week um, at uh, Vulcan Gas Company right now in Austin, Texas. We actually also do comedy down in San Antonio now. Uh, we've been doing that since like the end of 2020, and uh, we've done some really great shows down there. We have some really great shows coming up. We have Mark Norman down there, actually. Uh, we'll also have Mark Norman at in San Marcos uh, in June. Um, we just struck up a deal with uh, um, the the Spurs and the AT&T Center, so we're actually going to be doing comedy shows out of the AT&T Center. Brandon, um,
0: congratulations!
1: Thank you, thank it's you. Huge. Yeah, that, that's what I mean like big, you know, wow, big. gotta go yes. big. Um, That's huge. so we, uh, we finalized those deals we have. This is kind of also exclusive cause I haven't we really haven't made a, a big announcement about it yet. We will be in the, in the coming weeks, but, uh, we've got some big shows coming through there. Um, Austin, we're still continuing to do our thing here in Austin. We got some fantastic shows coming up. Tone Bell's coming in town. Um, we pretty much bring everybody that uh, people are fans of. We even have like a, uh, Ed Badma- Bassmaster, who's a YouTuber. He's coming through next weekend. Uh, Tony Baker is coming through. Uh, Pauly Shore is going to be doing a show here in Austin with us. Um, and so we got a lot of great shows that are coming Come down the pipeline. Uh, actually, I, I'll put this out there too. We actually, Andrew Dice Clay is going to be doing some shows with us. Oh. We got a little, because I'm, I'm a fan. Yeah, you mentioned him in I'm, your childhood. Yeah, yes, yes. And I and it's so cool because I talked to my dad. I'm like, dad, that's who I just talked to. He's like, who are like, my Andrew Dice Clay? He's like, holy shit. And it was like, we just talk about it. And uh, it's it's very cool. And, and the funny thing is like, talking to people like that, like someone who I grew up idolizing and obviously such a big player in the comedy scene is such an important person he's just the nicest person in the world like I constantly talk to him on the phone we've been talking for like months now and he's just like he tells me about his projects that he's got going on and, and his life wow. and stories and, and 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 actually the one of the first times we talked was right after the Texas storm the winter storm here and he uh he asked me he like Brandon he's like tell me about the winter storm it's like What's going on down there? Oh boy, just very interested oh, wow. and just a, a great guy. So we're doing stuff with him. So we got a lot of good things. You can find us, uh, if you go to our website, blcomedy.com. Uh, we also are going to be relaunching our website and we're going to have a bunch of new um, stuff on their content related material. We got a podcast that we're launching with uh, um, with Allison uh, uh who's he uh, an Austin comic. Um, so we do love Austin Comics, you know. I do love Austin Comics, uh, and uh, she's going to be doing a podcast called Detox with Allison um, that'll be launching here in the next week or so. And we've got some great interviews on there, so we got a, a lot of things kind of coming up. And um, so, just you know, what I would say is, to jump on the BL Comedy website if you want to get all the exclusive stuff. We have a great email list. You can go and sign up. It's called the VIP list. It's available on the website when you go on there to sign up. It's free um and then um you can follow us on social media instagram it's at big laugh comedy network and uh facebook you can just look up big laugh comedy and yeah and that's 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 us that's where you can find us that's what we got going on so again thank you so much valerie for having us on i'm looking forward to continuing to do this stuff with you and we'll definitely have to have you on you are on the list of people to have on uh the podcast with allison oh. we got some more stuff coming out too too so it's gonna be a lot of fun
0: fantastic well we hope you've enjoyed learning about how brandon lewin got to be the comedic mastermind genius that you heard today just as much as i have this has been comedy way and presents brandon lewin i'm valerie and that's been funny thank you brandon
1: thank you valerie